So this morning, Kenneth was talking a bit at the end of his mapping of the jhanas and the progress of insight uh, about these two different meditation tracks. Meditation track A and meditation track B. And I wanted to talk um, more about that tonight because I was left with the sense that uh, at the end of that talk that this is a big paradox. It's a really big paradox and it's one worth exploring more, um, especially here on the Pragmatic Dharma Retreat where we're not telling you which track you should be on. We're just saying they both exist. Some other terms for track A and track B. Uh, track A is the developmental track. And that was, I think, pretty obvious in the multiple stage sequences and correlating the relationships. And we were geeking out on the maps, but the maps are describing a progressive development unfolding through time. So that's track A. There's some sort of progress, there's some sort of development, there's time then we're on track A. And track B would be, you could say, the timeless track, where in the moment of being awake, the conceptual framework of time doesn't seem to superimpose itself on experience. It's not also that the concept, this is timeless, arises either, uh, or this is something special. It's just because of, there's a lack of that kind of thinking and that kind of conceptualizing, um, it's just not there. It's not there in the same way that we normally think of it. And so there's a real paradox here. How, how can it be that the, both of these tracks and how can it be also that you could be simultaneously working with both? Um, because I think many of us here probably are. We're probably working with both realities. Um, the timeless um, moment of simple presence, um, the simple feeling of being, I've heard it called. And then this gradual unfolding and deepening um, of knowledge and insight and capacity that is the developmental path. How can these two things coexist? I remember there's a phase of my practice and uh, one of my teachers Zen teacher named Trudy Goodman, she said, everything's a phase. So, you know, of course, a phase of my practice, every, everything in practice is a phase. But there was a particular phase where um, this question was really, really, really up for me. It was like a, it was one of the most important questions I had, which is how do these two relate? And I remember at the time I was doing a lot of retreats. Um, I was going up a lot to the Northeast to the Insight Meditation Society and trying to get as many Vipassana retreats as I could in. And at that time, I was kind of a noting maniac. 
um, but I was also kind of flirting with other perspectives. Others, I was reading a lot of different things, and much of it contradicted the Mahasi tradition. But I decided I'm just going to practice this one thing so I can go deep with it, while at the same time broadening my knowledge of all these other things. So I'm aware of what's going on. So I was also kind of flirting, you know, with these different perspectives and curious. I was reading people like Ramana Maharshi, this Indian sage from the 20th century, uh, and Srinisargadatta Maharaj, another Indian guy, both of whom had a pretty similar kind of message. And they talked all about how, you know, there's no way to gain this reality that you're seeking. There's no way you can actually do that. Um, and, 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 and something about that felt both really disempowering, because I'm like, well, then what am I doing <laughs> uh, here? And then also really intriguing. Like, what are they talking about? Because there's something in the words, something in what I'm sensing is being communicated that seemed really important, really interesting, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I didn't know what it was. Um, around that time, I went on a, uh, a long retreat, a long Vipassana retreat. And uh, I think that was the first time that I met Kenneth, actually. He was work working in, uh, at IMS, and uh, we met down in the boiler room uh, where he was uh, working in the maintenance department at the time. And you know, I got to talk to him about my practice at the beginning of the retreat and then at the end. And during this retreat, that question of how do these two things relate was so huge. Uh, I remember in the beginning, I talked to Kenneth, and we are talking about the noting and my plan and how I was going to do it. He gave me some tips. I was like, okay, I'm ready to go. Next six weeks, like, going to be noting. Um, the very end of that retreat, the, uh, the last week, I stopped noting. I gave up the noting. And what I found was I was in this space where I was just kind of gently inquiring and curious, who am I? I let go of the, the efforting of the noting and was just kind of walking around and being curious and open. And just it felt really good to let go of the of the gradual path of trying to get somewhere and just being curious. At the end of that retreat, I shared that with Kenneth, and he said two things. One, uh, it sounds like you might have been right at the right at the brink of enlightenment. <laughs> Uh, and we, you know, after talking about all the experiences I'd have over the six weeks, you know, he, he kind of helped me line a little bit of that up with the maps. And I was like, oh, shit. I was probably in equanimity, high equanimity. Uh, and the other thing after that is that uh, Kenneth also started talking about awareness and um and, and, and he seemed to be shifting his own kind of interests and experience toward people like Ramana Maharshi and Nisargadatta. And so then suddenly I was left with one person I was talking to, Kenneth, telling me about this and really interested in that and curious about it, not really so interested in talking about the noting anymore, but more interested in this, and, and I was too. Um, and then I was also talking to Daniel Ingram, um, and he was, you know, all about the noting and the stages and the progress of insight and a very little, if any, interest in, in this sort of uh, what he called the nowists, you know, the people that are focusing on this present moment. 
And so I was left, uh, in a way, feeling like I had almost like, the, you know, the, the, you know, you have the angel and the demon, except it was like two demons. <laughs> I had these two voices, you know, my own voice, but somehow, you know, internalized their voices, you know, the sudden voice and then the gradual voice, the developmental voice, and then the, you know, and it was just, it was a constant feeling of confusion and frustration and uh, even anxiety. Uh, about the situation, like which one of these is right? <laughs> uh, they can't both be, or can they? And if so, why does it feel like they're so different? Another, some other terms uh, we could use for track A and track B, the developmental and the timeless, are um, the gradual and the sudden. And this comes from the history of Zen Buddhism going back to China all the way back I mean, over a thousand years ago. This, this debate has been raging for thousands of years. <laughs> uh, raging, I don't know. Sometimes it's raging and sometimes <laughs> it's silent rage. <laughs> or as my, uh, my brother-in-law says when he comes down, we're on a family vacation, comes down to hang out after all the kids go to sleep, he says, silent rager. And if you look back in the history of, uh, of Zen in China, which was called Chan, Zen is the translation for Chan, there were several schools that were really prominent at the time that had different kind of approaches and kind of perspectives about what the path is and how to walk it and where it goes, just like today. Um, one of them was called the Northern School, another was called the Southern School. Of course, you got the North and the South at each other. And, and the northern school was considered the gradual school, and the, the southern school was the sudden school of enlightenment. And so there was this huge uh, and you know, centuries-long back and forth between the adherents of these different schools arguing and fighting about which one was right. And there's one story in particular that seems to really highlight um, the difference between these two schools. And I will say that this is a total legend. There's really no, really very little history that we have to validate any of this. But it, what's interesting about it isn't its historical accuracy to me, but it's the story that practitioners have told each other throughout time. It's like you know the family stories, right? It's the story your grandfather tells you about, you know how. You know, for me, it's like my grandfather telling me about his father and these insane stories. I'm like, that can't be true. <laughs> and yet, you know, it evokes this feeling of like, uh, yeah, happiness and pride to be part of my family lineage. And I love hearing those stories. It's really sweet. So the stories have some value in themselves, I think. And Hui Nang's is really interesting. So this character, Hui Nang, and the legend of Hui Nang, goes something like this. In the 7th century in China, there was what I guess in modern parlance, and especially in this area, we call uh, a redneck living in the south of China. And I don't mean redneck in a bad way at all. I just mean that he was doing manual work. Um, he wasn't well educated. He didn't have that opportunity. And, um, and yet, he seemed to have a very 
natural capacity to understand this idea of sudden awakening. And one day while he was at work, uh, there was a monk that passed by who was chanting out loud the Diamond Sutra, which is an early Buddhist text that really influenced the Zen tradition. And as he was listening to the Diamond Sutra, he caught you know, some lines of it and all of a sudden had the sudden awakening experience. He got what the sutra was pointing to and it totally transformed him. And then he went, oh, I have to go like somewhere and find, you know, someone who knows what this is about and talk to them. So he, he travels north to the, to the monastery that he knows about, to this Zen teacher named Hongren. And he goes in and he becomes part of the monastery. But he, because he is this southern, you know, barbarian they called him uh, this you know this this guy who you know is totally uh, uncouth you know he's not that's someone if you're like part of the monastic community you want to be like seen hanging with so of course he goes straight into just doing like basically like cooking work they put him in they throw him in the kitchen and he's just there and practicing and working and taking it in and deepening his understanding presumably And then one day, the um, Hong Ren, the lead teacher, says, you know, I'm, it seems like I'm going to die soon. I'm getting old. Some weird stuff's happening. I'm going to die. I need to find who my successor is. You know, who am I going to pass, pass this on to? And there's one person there in the community who, like, everyone thinks this is going to be the guy. Of course. Like, he's been here. He's loyal. He's always in the meditation hall. You know, he's always practicing. Um, He's super dedicated, super diligent. And so what Hong Gren does is he says to the community, he says, um, I want to see whoever wants to succeed me, they need to show their understanding of the essence of mind in a poem. And so he creates this poem competition. And they need to do it in public, in a public part of the monastery, so everyone can see the response. And then I'll assess whether or not they get it. And if they do, then I'll pass on my, my robes and my bowl to that person. Pass on the lineage to that person. And now Hui Nang is here, and at a certain point, um, the senior student of his that everyone expects to get the get to get the you know get the lineage transmission, Shen Su, he writes out his poem which I'll share in a moment. And then um, Hui Nang, he somehow, he, he hears the poem. He's actually illiterate. He can't read the poem, but he hears someone reciting it, you know, from the monastery that read it earlier. And like, oh yeah, wasn't that amazing, that poem? And, and so I think, of, I think of Hui Nang here now as, as like a, he's like the, 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 the ancient Chinese equivalent of good, goodwill hunting. Uh, if you've seen that movie, Will, Will Hunting, you know, Matt Damon plays this character who's like this ultra unrec he's this ultra genius who's totally unrecognized, lives in South Boston, like getting in fights all the time. He assaults this police officer, and then and then he's like forced um, to do start doing therapy and like start to sort his life out. He's working as a janitor, but he's at MIT. Okay, it's like very similar to Hui Nang, who's like pounding rice at this like prestigious monastery. And then one day. Uh, in, in the movie, um, this uh, MIT math professor puts up this proof that's like hasn't been solved or you know unsolvable, whatever. And 
Goodwill, you know, Will Hunting goes and he like while he's like sweeping the floor, he like goes and solves it. Hui Nang does the same thing. He 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 hears this poem and he says to someone, "Hey, let me re- write a response." And so let me share this uh, the original poem in his response. So the original poem, this is Shen Su expressing his understanding in the northern school, the gradual school. He said, the body is the tree of enlightenment. The mind is like a bright mirror's stand. Time after time, polish it diligently so that no dust can collect. The body is the tree of enlightenment. The mind is like a bright mirror's stand. Time after time, polish it diligently so that no dust can collect. So the dust here is like delusion, right? In the mind, the the mirror-like mind is sort of reflecting to us our original nature. But if these dust come on and land on it, it obscures that nature. So we have to work to remove the obscurations, to constantly and gradually pull them off one at a time. And we have to be diligent about that. We have to be on guard constantly, wiping, wiping, wiping the mirror to make sure that that original mind can shine brightly. Okay, that's the view that he's putting down. Hui Nang comes and says, okay, here's my response. Here's my poem. Enlightenment is not a tree. The bright mirror has no stand. Originally, there is not one thing. What place could there be for dust? Enlightenment is not a tree. (laughs) The bright mirror has no stand. Originally, there's not one thing. What place could there be for dust? So you can hear this total undercutting of the conceptual framework that this that this guy's realization is resting on. Originally, there's not one thing. You know, going back to the ladder of abstraction. You know, going all the way down to the bottom. There's not one thing. There's just this. The objects, the different things, seem to arise as a certain kind of low-level cognition comes, an ability to discriminate between things is its own kind of abstraction, to recognize different objects. To do that, we already have to have an idea of something to look for. I mean, that's a skillful means, but you could say it's not ultimately true. It's It's not the lowest level of abstraction. So Hui Neng comes in and kind of pulls the rug out from under him, or you could say pulls the stand out from under the mirror. Another quote from Hui Neng, talking more about the sudden approach to awakening. Oh, and I should say too that uh, the conclusion of that story is that uh, uh, 
the the master comes out, Hongren comes out, he says, erases the poem. He says, no, 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 the guy, that doesn't, the person doesn't get it. Then he secretly, supposedly, according to legend, goes to Huining's room and says, yeah, you got it. I, I was scared to, you know, say anything because these other monks are probably going to, you know, beat you and kill you. <laughs> that actually sounds accurate <laughs> uh, to me. Uh, and so he says here, uh, he, he explains to Huineng the Diamond Sutra, really gives him the full understanding. And as he's doing so, Huineng wakes up completely, has a sudden total awakening experience. And then he takes the robe and the bowl and he has to like run off and hide so he doesn't get killed. <laughs> this is a legend. Huineng says in the Platform Sutra, Erroneous views are of this world. Correct views transcend this world. If you smash completely the erroneous and the correct, then the nature of enlightenment will be revealed as it is. Just this is the sudden teaching. I thought that was so interesting. I highlighted that when I when I read it several years ago. I had no idea. I really didn't know what he was talking about, but it seemed interesting. Erroneous views are of this world, correct views transcend this world. Here it's interesting just to note that view the, the idea of view is really central in, in the Buddhist tradition. And having the correct view or the right view is central to being able to awaken according to you know the uh, the early tradition. Um, Without that, without having that right view, it's called samaditi. You couldn't actually, um, you wouldn't know what to practice, what you're aiming for, what results you should be looking for, how to do it. Without that, you just you know, could be spinning your wheels in delusion. Um, or in fact, they'd say you would be spinning your wheels in delusion, be in erroneous views. And so Queen Ang is actually saying, uh, yes, these right views transcend the world. You have this experience, some, some experience of transcendence of no longer being identified with things in, in the same way. And yet, if you smash completely all of those views, the correct and the, the erroneous and the correct, that's when the nature of enlightenment reveals itself as it is. Again, it's this idea of it's undercutting our concepts uh, about what this is. It's also interesting to note that um, this famous text from Huineng is called the Platform Sutra. And historically, in Buddhism, a sutra is something that the Buddha uh, said. It's, it's, it's something from the Buddha. It's words of the Buddha. So either he or his followers, someone decided this was a sutra. And so what's really interesting about this to me from a pragmatic Dharma perspective is there's right there, a very profound claim being made about the nature of this person's awakeness. You know, that he's not just saying, I'm an arhat, or I've achieved this thing that the Buddha laid out. He's saying, I am a Buddha. He's holding himself at the same place, the same realization. It's so radical to do that at this time. Um, And it's not just, you know, uh, dead 
Asian guys that have been enlightened or had these sudden awakening experiences. It's also contemporary people. Um, there's all kinds of really interesting stories um, about them. And um, actually, before I go into the contemporary, I want to also mention that it, it, it's not just contemporary. It's also even further back in the past. It goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha, this, this question. Um, and there's one story in particular, another sutra, uh, called the Bahia Sutra. And in this very short text, uh, there's an exchange between, between this new monk named Bahia, who, who sought out the Buddha to get teachings from him, and the Buddha. And they have this kind of back and forth. And the Buddha's kind of in a hurry. He's trying to go get food. This guy is like pestering him and bugging him, wanting teachings, and he won't let up. And so he says, okay, let me just give it to you straight here. And he tells Bahia, he says, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will only be the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you, when for you there will only be the seen, in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. Just the seeing, just the hearing, just the sensing, just the thinking. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder, nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And as uh, legend goes, uh, Bahia in that moment had a total awakening experience. He was then an arhat, fully awake on the spot. Uh, and as I was sharing uh, this, uh, my intention to share this story uh, today with Kenneth over lunch, he said, oh yeah, he's like, I, uh, I was talking to uh, Michael Taft about this. And he said, um, I, told, I was telling him, you know, in, in one way, the Buddha is like the worst possible student, and Bahia is an example of the best student, <laughs> you know, because the Buddha took all this time. You know, to, to develop, to train. He kept doing. He went through all these dead ends, looking for something, didn't find it there. Had to, you know, stop doing bajanas and became an aesthetic and starved himself. And then finally was tired of that and sat under a tree, you know. And so the Buddha, you could say, is like you know a slow learner in a way. <laughs> of course, but he had the help of the Buddha. So I'm not going to completely, you know, um, completely say that. I think it's a fun thing to say, but you know. <laughs> Not entirely true. But what's I think interesting uh, about that is that you know some people seem to have uh, just more natural capacity, just like with everything. So like some people just have more natural talent and capacity for certain kinds of things, and it doesn't seem like awakening is any different um, than those things, at least as far as I can tell. Hui Neng again. Again, in the platform sutra, he says, Good friends, in the Dharma, there is no sudden or gradual. But among people, some are keen and others dull. 
The deluded recommend the gradual method. The enlightened practice the sudden teaching. To understand the original mind is to see into your own original nature. Once enlightened, there is from the outset no distinction between these two methods. So again, you know, notice the move. He's undercutting the concepts and then saying, at this level, there's no distinction between these things. These, the idea of the sudden and the gradual, like that's its own conceptual, you know, blah. <laughs> of course, he also thinks the sudden school is the, <laughs> the best. Uh, there's another phrase in Zen. Those without preference. Uh, the great way is not difficult for those without preferences. Yeah. yeah. And then com- coming up to to modern day, um, you know, I love reading stories of people like Krishnamurti having these sudden awakening experiences. Um, Eckhart Tolle. That was one of the first books I read that really kind of jived with me and got me kind of back onto the spiritual path after some years away. Um, Adyashanti is another person that describes his experience this way. Um, and there's another person, that I, his story I really loved. Her name was Suzanne Siegel. She wrote a book in the mid-90s called Collision with the Infinite. And it's this really fascinating story wherein she had some experience with meditation. I think she did TM for a couple months and then just didn't really like it that much and stopped uh, and then didn't meditate you know that was it like that was that was kind of she tested it and let it go and then a couple of years later she was going to get into a bus and she was walking into the bus and as she stepped into the bus all of a sudden her personal sense of reference point a sense of self that she could point to in her experience vanished and did not come back. It's something shifted, her perception changed. And what's interesting is, you know, when, when I heard that story, I think, oh, that's great. You know, wow, it's amazing. She just all of a sudden had this deep, profound awakening. But actually, what was so interesting about her story is that it wasn't good for her. Um, the initial response that she had right there on the bus was she started having basically a panic attack. And her mind just kept racing, trying to find herself. She kept looking, trying to figure it out, and she just her body was like tight and chest pounding and sweating and clammy, and she she was in this state more or less for about two years. And she went to see therapist after therapist, you know, giving her drugs, nothing, you know, nothing worked. Um, she went to the doctors; they couldn't find anything wrong. Um, and finally, uh, and, and this is over a process of several years. It took her eight years, actually, to get to the point where she figured out what had happened in a, in a framework that was actually positive, that didn't make her think she was insane, because she thought she was crazy. She thought she had just lost it. Um, and she finally found some spiritual teachers and started talking to people who could recognize um, what was going on. One of them was actually Christopher Titmus, who I mentioned earlier. And as she described her experience to these various teachers, uh, like really well-known and you know popular teachers, they were all like, oh, yeah, that's what like everyone is here that we're teaching trying to get. <laughs> um, that's great. And she's like, ah, oh, really? And 
as she started to hear this sort of positive message and to think, oh, maybe something's not wrong with me, I haven't gone insane, maybe I've actually achieved this great thing, <laughs> then she started to relax into it and it started to open up into this really beautiful thing for her. It was like, it was like a, a life-affirming thing instead of this awful thing. And I, I thought that story was so interesting because it kind of highlights to me how important conceptual frameworks and preparation and models are. Like for someone who, for the rare person who might just have this total bottom dropping out experience, and it's not just a state, it actually becomes a trait. Um, you know, maybe it's, it could be extremely confusing or debilitating. Um, who knows? You know, there, who knows what the reactions could be if you didn't have a framework or a reference point for that? Because it's certainly not a cultural. Uh, there's not a cultural understanding of this stuff. And so, you know, she had to basically figure it out herself. In 2010, I was uh, on a month-long retreat at the Forest Refuge. And prior to that retreat, my, the practice was getting very open and spacious. And I was sort of recognizing, oh yes, I'm in a good place. It would be nice to go on this retreat. So I went on the retreat. As the practice unfolded, things were happening. Just like normal. But there was a deep sense of relaxation, ease, letting things come and go, just being with what is, tightening, contracting, letting it go. This is like a very, quote-unquote, easy retreat in a certain way. Um, when those happen, it's like, wow, thank you. And toward the end of the retreat, there was a sort of a kind of dramatic shift experience that happened, a kind of awakening experience. And I'd had a couple of those before, but this was this was not like this was different. It was like a different, altogether different category, because it really felt in the moment of this shift taking place that this journey and this quest that I'd been on ever since I had my first you know opening experience at the age of thirteen ended at this point it was like it was done i was like oh fuck <laughs> uh, and there was such a huge amount of relief and i just had this feeling of like oh yeah this is it don't have to go anywhere else to find this it's right here and i had the sense that it's been here all the time <laughs> uh, and i've somehow been overlooking it because i'm trying to get somewhere um and so it, it, it felt very yeah, it felt very much like a completion or come, uh, wrapping up of, of, of a phase of practice that really lasted for, you know, like 15 plus years. And, and what was maybe even more interesting than whatever changed um, was that within, you know, hours of this shifting, I started to notice that while something had changed, like there was some way in which the way I described it at the time, it felt like the strands of my sensory experience had been kind of, as they arose, they were all kind of 
winding together and becoming these things. Like after this experience, it seemed like they were just arising. There's just sensations arising and they weren't getting tangled up in each other as much or at a certain level at all. At a certain foundational level, there was just sensation and I knew that. I, trust, and I trusted that. It's just this. And I trusted it not because it was a concept, because it was so obvious. This is it. Um, but what was also true and also obvious is that even though this was it, I still was deluded. <laughs> I still was. Conf- I still would, you know, have a thought arise and you know go into this little fantasy land and then to feel painful and I'd get contracted and feel bad and then wake up to it and come back to this. Uh, and the this was always there and there was always a coming back to it, so in a way it was okay. But at the same time, I could see how all the practices that I've been doing, while they had nothing to do whatsoever with this understanding, they really freaking helped to be able to work with the stuff that came up and then to be able to come back to this. Like they somehow, like I had tools to work with the shit. Uh, And I was like, oh wow, I see the brilliance of this tradition now. In a way, they're pointing to this thing that you can't achieve, and but if you do achieve it, you've built up all these tools that will help you then, like, actually be there to actually embody that understanding to 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 more thoroughly know it. And so here, I'm, I'm I guess I'm starting to get into the question of yeah, what is the relationship between this gradual path and the sudden path, the developmental and the timeless. And, and I don't think there is just maybe one relationship. I think there's lots of ways that people uh, throughout time have tried to um, integrate or talk about the relationship between these two. I mean, there seems to be a large agreement that, there, <laughs> that these two things are different. Um, but then there also are a lot of people who talk about the, you could say, the non-duality or the integration of, of the two. Here's another way of describing um, the experience that I had on retreat, where on the one hand everything was done and okay, and on the other hand there's still confusion and delusion and things, you know, things to work with, uh, which was its own you know, interesting paradox. Uh, this Korean uh, Zen master named Shanul said, "Just because the sun is out doesn't mean all the snow will melt at once." So this this was part of Chanul's response to this question. Just because the sun is out doesn't mean all the snow melts at once. Just because there's a recognition that this is it doesn't mean all the habits and conditioning we have to be like looking for it somewhere else or to, you know, uh, all the conditioning we have, all the ways that we suffer, um, that those things just go away. Um, It's not so. Maybe it's so for someone. Maybe someone's experienced that. I haven't not met that person yet. And Chanel had um, a phrase for describing how he squared these two perspectives, how he kind of made sense of them. And it was the phrase was sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. Sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And so the idea was it's really useful to have some experience of the sudden awakening of, of just seeing 
the way things are now, how experience is. And part of the reason it's useful to do that is then as you start to do these gradual practices and to cultivate certain capacities, deepen your concentration, you know, have insights into the nature of phenomenal experience, etc. Um, building your capacity to open the heart, to inquire, to whatever, that it's useful to have this kind of reference point in your experience, even if it beca becomes a memory, and that's often what happens, it becomes this memory and thought. But still, some part of us has this knowing, then at some level we can engage with the gradual path without assuming quite so much that it's going to give us this thing. Because we already saw the way it was without having to do all of that. In fact, in the Tibetan tradition, this is the, their whole formulation of, of how to practice is to start first with the ground, then practice the path, and finally experience the fruition. Ground, path, fruition is the model uh, often presented in the Vajrayana tradition. And the idea of the ground is that you experience the, the ground, the, the, the thing you're looking for right now, as the ground of your own, of your own path, as the own, your own experience. And the way they would do this in the tradition is often by pointing out that ground, pointing out the nature of mind. Often a teacher would point to the nature of mind. Um, Kenneth and I have been doing this in various ways, pointing back to it. And in some moments, you, you may see, oh yeah, there it is. Of course, that's a thought. But the actual experience, as Kenneth was saying, it's not, it's not something you can really doubt. Um, and it's not something anyone else gets to have an opinion about. It's self-obvious. It's just obvious. And then we can walk the path with some knowledge about where it's, quote-unquote, where it's leading. Um, and I, I, I found that formulation really helpful probably because I was so obsessed with the path that just the idea that oh like this is this is this could this could be understood as what I'm looking for could be understood as something which is always already present it's not something I have to manufacture or to attain or to get or to have because all of those things have to do with objects. They have to do with acquiring something. And one of the most consistent descriptions I've seen of awakeness is that it's not a thing. It's no thing. That's one of the ways you know you, you know you, you know it is that you don't know it. Um, you, there's the knowing through not knowing. So when not knowing is the ground of the path, then the idea is that the path can unfold a little more naturally, perhaps.
if you've felt this is a kind of paradox or a challenge, if you've noticed the tension between these perspectives as I did, uh, I want to offer here a way to practice um, working with those perspectives and so that you can come to understand the, no the non-duality of the two. This is the practice of the middle way. And the middle way is a very common concept in, in early Buddhism. It's one of the core ideas. Um, and the idea of the middle way is that you find this understanding that is between and beyond the two opposites that you're working with. In the case of the Buddha, it was between you know, eternalism and nihilism. That's how he described the middle way. Um, but there's lots of different middle ways. And there's lots of different dualities. As one of, one of my friends and teachers, David Loy, said, he said, there's as many non-dualities as there are dualities. So this particular duality that we're talking about, development, and timelessness, gradual and sudden, the, the way to practice the middle way, in, in, in any of those cases, it doesn't matter what the duality is you're working with, is to hold the two seeming opposites in your attention at once. See to see if you can hold the two things at once, simultaneously. In attention. In attention. Not in your mind, not like as a thought, but also in attention. Um, this is something I learned from Ken McLeod. And I found it really helpful. Because I, I had an idea of what the middle way was, but I didn't know what it, what it actually meant to practice the middle way. And when he said that I, I realized, oh yeah, that is kind of what I have ended up doing in my practice and what I've seen happen with other people, except, you know, I wasn't trying to hold the two things in mind. I was, just, I was trying to make one of them go away so the other would emerge victorious. <laughs> and, and my assumption was one of them had to be true and the other false. And the question was, which one? Uh, and here the idea was, no, if you hold the tension and the, and the confusion and the not knowing of these two in mind at once, you know, what is it like to hold the sudden and gradual at once, the timeless and the developmental at once. Even making room for those two different conceptions and whatever the concepts point to in your own experience. What is your experience of the sudden, timeless nature of things? And what's your experience of the gradual path of development and cultivation and struggle and uh, achievement and all of that? And then what's it like to hold both of those in attention at once? I'm doing it now, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling my body kind of start to awaken. So the areas in the body, especially in the lower spine, that's just sort of naturally straightening. There's a sense of energy rising, kind of clarity, but also a kind of stillness. See what it's like for you. Holding both of these in mind at once.
could be confusion. The idea is like whatever the reaction is, we also can hold that in attention. We can go to our go-to move and just see what's happening right now. So I'd like to close tonight just by taking a minute to sit together silently. Shouldn't be too hard at this point. This is an aspirational prayer for Mahamudra, Mahamudra, the great seal from the Tibetan tradition by Rangjung Dorje, the third Karmapa. It doesn't exist. Even the enlightened ones haven't seen it. It is not non-existent because it's the basis of all samsara and nirvana. This is not a contradiction because this is the unity of the middle way. May we realize the true nature of mind, which is free from all limitations and extremes. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.